Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. I meet dozens of women through our training programs who have just been promoted, but sometimes they feel uneasy about the promotion and for good reason. My guest today is Professor Michelle Ryan, who identified the glass cliff, a phrase used to describe when women are ushered into leadership positions just as things are about to get precarious. How often has a woman been asked to take on an impossible task or present the bad news? It's particularly fitting that Julia Gillard is a good example of the glass cliff because Professor Michelle Ryan is now the inaugural director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, founded by the former Prime Minister herself. Professor Ryan is working to create a world in which being a woman is not a barrier to becoming a leader in any field. Prior to this, she studied psychology at the ANU and she has spent the last 17 years in the UK. Here to talk about the glass cliff is Professor Michelle Ryan. Welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series, Professor Michelle Ryan, and welcome back to Australia. I want to start with asking you what changes you might have noticed since you returned. Well, thanks very much for the welcome back. It's so nice to be home. Just on a personal note, I've been going down to a little market that I've been going to since I can walk, and I've been taking my son there exactly the same. And in other ways, I'm I'm back at the Australian National University, and every time I turn a corner, there's a new and spectacular building there. So lots of things the same, lots of things completely different. Well, it's great to have you back. And I guess the starting point for today's discussion is really around your research uh, in 2003, when you were the one to identify what we now know to be the glass cliff. Is this still a thing nearly 20 years on? Yeah, I mean, we'd like to think that in 20 years we would have made a lot of progress, and and in some ways we have. But but I think actually the last 20 years have really been characterised by a period of stagnation. I don't think there's been nearly enough changes we would expect. So when we uncovered the idea of the glass cliff, so this is the idea that women are more likely to take leadership in risky and precarious positions. For us, that was a very new phenomenon um, that we uncovered, but we're absolutely still seeing it today. So, so I don't think there's been any huge shifts or changes in sort of levels of, of glass cliff, but neither do I think there's been massive shifts in other areas of gender equality either. Well, that's a bit disappointing to to hear from you. But can you tell me at the time when you were looking at this issue and before you coined the phrase, what was going through your head and how did it come about? So it was an article that was on the front page of the business section of The Times in London 
And it was an article about what happened when women were breaking through the glass ceiling. So what they said was the more women that were on boards, the worse the company tended to do on their annual uh, share price performance. And so their claim was that women were wreaking havoc, this idea that maybe we shouldn't have women on boards of directors because no good comes of it. And reading this article, um, we just thought that it was was perhaps not the right analysis of the data that we had. And we thought that perhaps what was happening was the reverse. So rather than women causing poor company performance, we sort of had the hypothesis that maybe poor company performance was causing women to be appointed to boards of directors. And when we did a much more in-depth analysis of the data that was there, that's exactly what we found. So we coined the phrase the glass cliff to really get this idea of women being in top leadership positions, so on the boards of of top companies, but the precarity of those positions because they were in times of crisis when share price was going down really shows that these positions are are difficult and and risky. So do you see that phenomenon a rung down? So not necessarily just a female CEO taking on the company when it is in trouble, but also um, in a management team where there's a difficult predicament that the company is going through. Often it's a a woman that's thrust into the limelight or into the danger zone. Have you identified that as a version of the glass cliff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The glass cliff isn't just, as you say, in these top management teams on these boards of directors where the original research was done, but actually we've seen them in at all sorts of different levels. So at wherever you have any type of leadership, whether that's sort of mid-management or leading small teams and those sorts of things that can occur, but also across a whole range of different sectors. So not just in corporations, um, it's been shown to occur in politics, in sports, uh, in libraries, in educational institutions. So all sorts of different places and, and really broadly defined in terms of what leadership looks like. So it's been 20 years since you've been talking about this. Do you think it's widely understood in organisations now so that, you know, a big company sees a woman promoted and everyone around her goes, oh, gosh, you know, she's really the last person standing. Is that a sentiment you see in day-to-day organisations in 2022? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think the, I mean, the whole metaphor of the glass ceiling, that glass aspect is is the subtlety associated with it. It's taken from the idea of the glass ceiling, the idea that there's an invisible barrier that's there. So in, in coining the phrase, we wanted to get at this idea of subtlety and the idea that it isn't always seen. It's not always obvious. Uh, it's not the case that people are sort of saying, oh, it's a bad position. We should put a woman in there. But there's much more subtle forces that happen there. But certainly, I think there's increasing recognition that it is a thing. So I think certainly in public discourse, in the media, and also in HR teams and things like that, there is a little bit more conversation about uh, what are the nature of positions that women are going into. And it's certainly a different way to evaluate or talk about uh, when women do take on leadership positions. So it's not just a simple, oh, you know, she's doing badly in that position, but what was the position like before she was in there? So really, we see that as an important part of our 
our job as researchers is to make sure that the research is out there so that people do have these alternative explanations that are different from what, say, the the Times of London was saying about women going into boards of directors. So looking at your own experience, I imagine you've been asked by many women, you know, should I take this job? I mean, that's the sort of thing that women talk about when they think about a big promotion anyway, because it means a lot more responsibility and often they're already stretched. Um, What do you say? What advice do you give, particularly where you know there are significant risks involved? Yeah, and I think this is really difficult to give, you know, overarching advice. I mean, I think a lot of our research definitely shows the risk and precarity in these sorts of positions. So I think understanding the risks involved, that it may involve being blamed for things that happened before you came into the role, that there might be increased sort of um, vigilance on your leadership uh, in times of crisis. There's a lot of attention on on the crisis, so that puts you in a spotlight. And if things are, are perhaps not going to plan, if, if things are difficult, then that might not necessarily be the time that you want to be in scrutiny. There's also lots of evidence that um, things don't always end well in glass cliff positions. So if you look at CEOs in the US, for example, the average tenure of a male CEO is uh, seven and a half years and the average tenure for a female CEO is about two and a half years. And some of that absolutely comes down to the risk and precarity in these sorts of positions. So We know that there are these negative aspects of it, including stress, including difficulty of performing, including how you're evaluated. But all of those things being said, we also know that the glass cliff is seen as an opportunity by some. So some of the women that we've interviewed have said things like, well, you know, I'm not going to get a a leadership position any other way. So this is my opportunity to get my foot in the door. So as an example, I, I always think of Theresa May taking on the prime ministership in the UK. UK during Brexit. I think there's no doubt that she knew that that was a risky and difficult position, but she also knew that this was probably the only time that she would get an opportunity to be prime minister. So if you see it as an opportunity, um, you don't necessarily want to say, well, I'm going to wait for the for the next opportunity because there may not be one. So then the advice if you do take on one of those positions is to really make sure that the, the glass aspect of the glass cliff um, isn't there, that that it's made obvious to people that you are taking on a position in, t- in a time of crisis. And our research shows that there's a number of different things you can do to help you do better in those positions. So one is making sure you have resources in order to deal with the crisis. So that might be time, that might be money, that might be support from management. Um, all of those things are important. Making very clear what the goals are, that that it isn't necessarily record high share prices or top sales outputs, but maybe even just maintaining performance um, in a time of crisis is important. So making sure that the evaluation is fair and just given the, the given the time. And I think making sure that you have support. So whether that's in terms of from upper management or in terms of colleagues or staff, making sure that you have the support to get through that crisis. So it's important to frame it, to understand what you're walking into and frame where you think you can make a difference rather than let somebody else frame what your success might look like. 
Yeah, absolutely. So having control over the crisis and the optics around the crisis as well. And I think it is important to note that not every single glass cliff position ends in disaster. In fact, many women do thrive in these sorts of positions. So uh, Angela Merkel is an example. Uh, when she took on um, in Germany um, as head of state in Germany at a time with a very difficult coalition in times of many crises and actually many people would argue that she thrived. Um, Mary Barra took on um, the CEO ship of General Motors just before there was a massive recall of cars um, two weeks after her appointment, which she knew nothing about. Um, but actually, she's gone on to win many awards for her crisis management and how she's taken General Motors through that crisis as well. Your research also found that white males often stand aside in a situation like this to allow a woman to take the job. Why do they do that? And what do they do when they're sitting on the sidelines? Yeah, I think I think that really is this idea around framing it around opportunities and how many opportunities people have. So as a crisis position comes up and leaders are vying for the position, I think there's a number of reasons why men might step aside or, or or those with privilege might step aside. One is that they might have more of a heads up that actually the crisis is coming. Crises aren't always on the front page of newspapers or, you know, on, on the websites and things like that. People don't like to advertise crises. So the example I gave before about uh, uh, General Motors, um, this big recall, while a lot of insiders knew about it, it wasn't something that other people knew about, and certainly Mary Barry didn't know about it either. But there may have been other people who could have been, uh, you know, people, men that were a part of the old boys club that would have had that inside information and known to avoid it. In other situations, the crisis is more obvious. So again, thinking of Brexit in the UK, I've never seen so many men run in the opposite direction from a leadership position. So Boris Johnson, for example, Cameron also stepped down. So there are a number of men who who really quite enjoy being in the leadership limelight that were very happy to step aside and, and let Theresa May sort of take on that role, Michael Gove as well. And what's really interesting to me is I, I believe all of them were biding their time for a better opportunity to come along. And they have the privilege and, and the ability to do that because there will be other opportunities for them, as we've seen with Boris Johnson. So once Theresa May has done all of the legwork and, and taken all the criticism around sort of Brexit, he can sort of swan in afterwards and and not quite cover himself in glory, but but at least sort of take it through at a time where there's there's much less negative evaluation. So one way to game the system might be that women should seek out organisations where there has been issues in the hope that they can rise quickly through the ranks. Is, have you seen that in real life? Yeah, I think in some of the interviews we did, we talked to some women who said that they absolutely sought out organisations in crisis or branded themselves as crisis managers as a way of getting leadership positions and as a way of setting them aside from the competition. So I think that's absolutely a strategy that can be used and, and some women do use. The one caution about that, though, is that it's very difficult um, potentially to build a whole career on that. There's a lot of evidence 
evidence that shows that while women are brought in in times of crisis, they're often pushed out once that crisis is over. So very difficult to have a consistent, I guess, career by getting your foot in the door by crisis and expecting to rise up from there. What you might end up doing is is being recycled through crisis position after crisis position. Now, if that's the sort of job that you're after, if what you like doing is firefighting, then that could absolutely be a strategy. But I don't think it's necessarily a strategy that will get you in the door and keep you on an upward trajectory. And it sounds exhausting. Exhausting indeed, yeah. So if someone's going for a job in a top position and they're in the, they're in the frame to get the job, is there a way or do you advise that they ask the question about whether there's something going on in the business that they should be told about? I think that's a really interesting idea. I'm, I'm, I mean, I think there's probably two ways to approach that. I think one is to to do your homework before the interview, you know, so these things are not going to be written in the job descriptions or, you know, on the websites and things like that. So asking around, get be using your networks to get that inside information. But I think absolutely asking the question, framing it in the right way about saying, you know, is there anything on the horizon or anything that's up and coming that I need to know about? Um, or, I mean, if you wanted to be really bold, <laughs> you could even raise the idea of, of, of um, I don't know, the precarity of this position. How many resources are going to be available? You know, what uh, time frames have you got for those sorts of things? So I, I think if you can be as transparent and, and get the organisation to be as transparent as possible, I think that could potentially alleviate a lot of the issues associated with the glass cliff. So... Knowing all this and talking to all these incredible women, on balance, what what do you recommend? So we've got um, a younger audience listening to this podcast. They know exactly what you're talking about. They've seen examples of it. They want to take the job. What's your advice to them? Yeah, I mean, I think being really informed about what that job is going to be like. You know, we talk about men having these networks like the old boys club of getting the inside information. And I think it's really crucial to to be able to form those networks for yourself, to be able to get that inside information so you can make really informed decisions, but also so that you can shore up your own leadership so that you've got the support and resources that you need. But I think it really is about going in open-eyed and knowing what to expect and really making sure that others, those that will evaluate you, those that will resource you, those that will support you know what's going on as well. So so I think a lot of the things that underlie gender inequality is all of the unspoken things, all of the things that happen behind the scenes, behind closed doors that aren't in the manual or in the job description. And I think it's, it's bringing a level of transparency and and clarity to these positions helps to, I guess, mitigate the, the problems that might be associated with glass cliff positions. That is just so interesting. And I think, you know, even in my own experience, you know there's another conversation going on. You know that the men in the organisation are having a different conversation um, amongst themselves than they're quite often having with their female colleagues. And you are missing part of the trick if you can't access that conversation. I want to move on and talk to you a little bit about your own leadership style. You've been following leadership styles. You've been researching it and talking about it. Tell me about your leadership style now that you've just taken this job um, back in Australia with uh, the ANU. You know, what you what you get right and what you get wrong. 
Yeah, I'm not sure I get it all right, but uh, but I do my best. It's one of those interesting things about someone that researches women in leadership and then then becomes a female leader as well. So it, it feels like it's it's all of those things sort of crashing together. So I've recently taken on um, the directorship of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. So this is a research institute that uh, looks at the barriers to women's leadership and, and why women are underrepresented. And we work with all sorts of organisations, corporate organisations and activists and advocates and policymakers as well to make sure that there's a really clear evidence space for change um, and that we can implement that evidence base in practice as well. So this has been a, a really exciting move back to Australia and an exciting leadership position to take on. But yeah, it does give me a chance to sort of put my money where uh, my mouth is in, in some ways and enact some of those things. So for me, when I'm I'm doing leadership, I guess one of the things that I really try to do is is define leadership myself. So I I think in society, we have some very clear ideas about what good leadership looks like. All of the research suggests that uh, our stereotypes of of successful leadership is very masculine. So it's about strong ambition. It's about cutthroat sort of uh, ideas. It's it's about being forceful and strong. And, and, you know, these are our, our very clear stereotypes about what successful leadership looks like. When we look at successful leaders, when we talk about successful leaders, this is often the language that we use. And I have to constantly remind myself that actually that's that's not what effective leadership looks like. It, it's, it's how we talk about it, but it's not necessarily the case. So I try and, and do leadership in a way that makes sense for me. I think leadership is about amplifying others, about supporting others, about lifting people up. I think for me, it's really important to focus on perhaps other aspects of leadership around support and about compassion and and about doing what's morally right and morally good, about taking people with you. So so it's not, leadership isn't about sort of striding ahead and and glory, but it is about uh, bringing and lifting up as many people as you can. So so I absolutely see leadership as a as a group process rather than a sort of individual trait that someone has. And I try and live that on a day-to-day basis. I'm not sure that I always get it right, um, but that's certainly what I try and do. I think you've just answered my next question, and that is what are the, the differences in leadership styles between men and women? Yeah, I think that is a, an interesting question. There's some evidence in the literature that suggests that men are more likely to lead in this forceful way and women are more likely to lead in this sort of um, transformational, lift people up kind of way. But I also think that that's a little bit too simplistic. Um, I, I actually think that the variations between men and between women are just as big as the variations between men and women themselves. So so I think there's lots of individual differences um, in, in leadership style. And, and I think we shouldn't get too caught up in saying, well, women lead in this very particular way. Because if you get a woman that doesn't lead like that, for whatever reason, um, then she can get judged very harshly for that. And and also it, it discourages, I, I guess, men from, from leading in different ways. So I think I would rather say that rather than men leading one way and women leading another, that there's a spectrum of leadership that, that one could take um, and, and that we need to move from that. Now, that being said, um, we also know that women are socialised in particular ways um, that emphasise cooperation and collaboration, that they're rewarded for that um, throughout their careers. And and so it might be no surprise that um, many women 
find it successful to lead in that way. Um, I think that's partly because that's how we're expected to lead, uh, not necessarily because it's an innate kind of difference between men and women. We've seen leadership styles come in and out of fashion. So, you know, that command and control, and we talk a lot about empathy and I think a lot more about inclusion, and we'll come to that uh, in a minute. But if we cast ahead, what do you see are the sorts of skills that our audience should be thinking about developing in terms of their leadership styles? I think the best way to approach leadership and thinking about leadership is that no one style is actually going to be effective in all sorts of circumstances. If you think of leadership as bringing a group along to achieve a particular goal, you know, that's how I see leadership, you know, that's what leadership is about, then what's going to be effective is going to depend on who the group is, what the goal is, what the context is in which you're trying to achieve that goal. And if people just sort of slavishly follow one type of leadership style, it's not going to be particularly useful across the board. So there's a lot of research that that suggests that actually adaptability and changing your style of leadership and the way you respond to people and the way you bring people up actually is a really critical aspect of successful leadership. You also looked at at inclusion more broadly and um, including women and men from um, different backgrounds into leadership positions. Tell me, what are you seeing in this space? Are we growing in our understanding of the value of diverse voices around the table or do we have a long way to go? I think both of those things, if that's if that's true, I think we are making gains and we're getting better understandings, but I still think we have a long way to go. I think one of the most important things to recognise in this space when we talk about diversity and inclusion is, is the idea of intersectionality. I know that feels like a little bit of a buzzword, but the idea here really is if we're looking at, say, gender equality or, or diversity on the basis of gender, you know, that's a really an important thing to do. But it's also important to note that not all women face the same barriers. Not all women need the same interventions and, and diversity initiatives as other women. And, and that actually the experience of women is really varied. A lot of the initiatives and uh, diversity initiatives that, that are enacted in organisations today really benefit middle-class white women. That's who they're designed for. That's often who they're delivered by. And that's who benefits most from them. But actually, who we leave behind are, are those people that have the least amount of privilege. So these are women that often have intersecting um, uh, levels of, of disadvantage. So whether this is women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, whether this is disabled women or working class women or queer women, and I think what's really important, and I think where we need to do the most work is actually making sure that our diversity initiatives are not leaving particular people behind and that they're looking at a whole range of um, different dimensions on which people can experience disadvantage. How does Australia compare in this area with the UK or other regions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's really interesting. It's difficult to make those sorts of comparisons. It's it's interesting to sort of be back 
hear and hear where the conversations are happening. I think you asked me right at the beginning what's changed, and I think certainly a more complex view of of what diversity looks like and what diversity initiatives should look like. I think there's much more discussion about First Nations and Indigenous women, which I think was not on the discussion sort of 20 years ago. So, so I think Australia has particular issues that they need to deal with. We also have different issues in terms of the makeup of of, um, the women that we have within our organisations. You can't just take initiatives from the US that perhaps focus on African-American women, for example, or or South American or Mexican women and just transplant that into an Australian context. I think we need to understand um, our colonial history. I think we have to understand waves of immigration that have happened. I think we have to understand indigeneity and, and those sorts of things as well if we're really going to have diversity initiatives that work. Can I just sidetrack for a moment? Precisely what is your work looking at under the guise of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and working with Julia Gillard? Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, absolutely. We're we're reasonably new. So um, I just arrived in Australia in December last year. So we're we're building up and we're building a team. The idea between our with our institute is really to have a interdisciplinary group of researchers. So we've got political scientists and social psychologists and organisational psychologists. We've got international relations experts and we've got a wider net of people from a whole range of different disciplines. And the idea really is to bring us all together to understand the complexities of the underrepresentation of women in leadership and gender inequality in the workplace more generally. So we've got a number of lines of research that are, are trying to find an evidence base for real change. So, for example, a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment is really looking at how we look at women's career choices. I think there's a lot of uh, focus on how we can fix women to make them do better in organisations. So can we give them leadership training? Can we tell them to lean in? Can we give them confidence training? Can we deal with their imposter syndrome? And a lot of those initiatives really aim at fixing women giving them the skills that they need, helping them overcome the barriers that they sort of internally face. And what my work really does is try and flip that around and say, okay, well, if if women are underconfident, instead of trying to just fix their confidence, we should understand why that is. What is it about their workplace experiences and how they're treated and their lack of role models that actually leads to that underconfidence and fix those things rather than trying to fix the women themselves. We've also got a number of other researchers that are doing some terrific research. Uh, So we've got people looking at how women are represented in the media and how they're uh, talked about, especially female politicians in the media. Uh, We've got another research that's doing some excellent work on um, looking at women in space and and looking at as we move into space and space exploration and those sorts of things, what diversity in space looks like. So we've really got this multi-pronged attack to try and find as many ways in which we can bring about change. One of the things that absolutely fascinates me is the issue of confidence. And it bothers me that there is this crisis of confidence. And how do you fix it? Although I'd like to think understanding it better is is a step towards fixing it. What do you say to people like me who get asked about it all the time? And, and what do you say to the women who say, my biggest problem is my confidence? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I think it's often framed as this idea that women are underconfident. Um, <laughs> my instant reaction to that is that sometimes I think men are overconfident, actually. So so it isn't that women are lacking, but that that men are just maybe a little bit too confident, um, which I which I find an interesting way of sort of phrasing that. But I think what's really important is that <laughs> that I think confidence is absolutely a key aspect. You know, the, when we think about what leadership looks like, we always think about these super confident sort of people that that never hesitate before they make a decision that, are, you know, they know their inner selves, they can be authentic, they can do all of these sorts of things. One of those is that that's just our romantic idea of what leadership looks like, and that's actually not really the reality. This is how we talk about in our biographies and autobiographies of leaders, but but in reality, most people do actually question themselves or, you know, do actually prevaricate and all of those sorts of things. So one is just it's an unreasonable expectation that people are just uber confident. I think the other thing is saying, well, if women lack confidence, where does that come from? I, I don't think it's an innate sort of lack of confidence. I, I think it is this thing that um, society brings out in women, I guess, this this idea. Because one, there's a big backlash against confident women. So we see it all the time. Um, we see it in women in the media, you know, we, we see it in politicians and things like that. This criticism of women being strident, and bossy. You know, there's particular words that are often used to describe strong, confident women, and they're not positive, right? You know, there is this backlash against it. There's this criticism. There's this, this great need to bring confident women down a peg. So, when this happens and when we see this happen, we we know about this and, and women adapt their behaviour. So, we preface our ideas by saying, oh, I think, or maybe, or would it be right if X, Y, and Z? So because we've seen what happens when when women are strident, and I put that in, in inverted commas. So not only is there a backlash against sort of confident women, but there's also this rewarding of women that are a little bit, uh, you know, perhaps softer or not so sort of strong and, and pushy. Um, so I think these things get rewarded and punished in us, and, and these are the things that sort of come to the fore. But I think this other thing about imposter syndrome is is this another uh, another thing that's that's really affiliated with this idea of confidence and we're we're doing a whole lot of research on imposter syndrome at the moment which really shows that in levels of imposter syndrome are, are not about this sort of individual lack of confidence but much more about how you're treated by other people whether your abilities are actually acknowledged whether you're treated in ways that make you feel valued and make you feel like you belong so my response I guess that's a very long-winded response but my response to this idea about confidence and a lack of confidence is is to say the why and and where does that come from and how do we fix those things because if if what we do is give women a whole lot of confidence training and teach them to be sort of stronger and louder and all of those things and send them back into context in which there's still a backlash against confidence women. That's not particularly helpful unless we change that system to one that accepts confident women in the in as they are. I want to quickly ask you about the representation of women in media, having given me that answer about confidence and imposter syndrome. What are you saying about the way women are um, represented in the media that um, has you interested? 
I mean, I think it's interesting in lots of different ways. One is just the number of women that are that are in the media, and and I think we've recently had a report that uh, Jewel was um, engaged in as well about the sheer numbers or the lack of numbers of women in the media. So either as announcers or as experts or as as people that are quoted and those sorts of things as well. So so I think firstly, there's just the underrepresentation of women in the media. The other one really is just around how they're treated when they are on there. Um, you know, we still we still get these complaints about women's shrill voices and and the vocal fry that is really annoying that that women you know use in media. And I find these really interesting. It's not even about what we're saying; it's just how we're saying it. So, you know, I think if you spend your whole life listening to men and suddenly a woman comes on, it, it sounds weird. It sounds a little bit different. And you know, the idea that women still get complaints about how their voice sounds is, is ridiculous. But then, of course, the third one is is not just about sort of criticising women just on that sort of superficial way, but really, I guess, the sort of vitriol and the backlash that women receive for having opinions, for talking about their opinions, for, for daring to be outspoken. And, and I think until all of those things are, are dealt with, I, I, I think um, it is a, an issue that, that needs to be addressed. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received as a leader? I don't know I don't know whether it's any one piece of advice that I've given, but I think what I've taken when I look at the leaders that I like to role model myself on is that actually there's no one person that can be a perfect role model for you. So it isn't about saying, okay, pick the leader that you want to be and be like that. For me, the way that I've approached my leadership and 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 chosen my role models is to say, actually, I might need a whole lot of different role models. This person's great at public speaking. This person's great at lifting people up. This person's sort of great at, at, at research. Uh, you know, this person's got a great work-life balance. And then trying to bring all of those things together. And I guess that's what I also try and do in reverse I try and be not just a leader, but be a role model and realise that if you're in a visible position and a leadership position, that people will look to you. And it's your responsibility to model appropriate behaviour, moral behaviour, healthy behaviours. And I think those two things together really help shape what my leadership looks like. Professor Michelle Ryan, it is great to have you back in Australia. I'm fascinated by the research you're doing and I hope that we can have you back on to um, hear some more about all three of those areas. Thank you for making the time today. Thanks so much, Helen. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, Executive Producer Jenny Goggin, Sound Production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.